You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Ten, nine, ignition sequence starts. Six, five, four, three. Well, clearly two, that sets one, the theme of this zero. show. All engine running. Namely, how dinosaurs influenced plate tectonics. Or maybe it's neuroscience and feng shui. No, maybe the biology of snails. <laughs> no, no, it's a show devoted to counting backwards, otherwise known as backwards counting to devoted show A, it's no. <laughs> NASA and space. What else? Actually, it's NASA or what? Because the future of the agency charged with putting humans and robots into space is somewhat muddled. Now that the space shuttles are retired and headed for museums... Who will take us into space? Private companies? The government? I can't do it myself, even though I'm occasionally exhausted. (laughs) I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science. And there's nothing bigger than space. So we're enlisting the services of retired shuttle engineer and ongoing space expert James Oberg to put it in perspective. Hi, Jim. Hi, Seth. Hi, Molly. Hi, Jim. Is it true you're a self-described space nut? Indeed, I am. Uh, I was uh, a space nut before Sputnik, so I remember the entire development of the space age, and I watched it, kept scrapbooks, and uh, talked about it to all my friends. Well, we're going to talk to you about it. Uh, to begin with, Jim, what, what is the focus of NASA? How do you see that, given that the shuttle is no longer flying? The focus is going to be flying the space station and flying it safely and productively, because that is still up there. And even though it's going around in circles and looks like it's going nowhere, it's the only way we can prove out the kinds of life support equipment that you need for interplanetary flight, where you can get spare parts now when they break. You won't be able to on the way to Mars. So, Jim, would you say that the space station, the International Space Station, is the strength of NASA right now? Because some would also make the case that that's the area in which NASA has gone off course. Building a space station was a political as well as a technical challenge, and there are definitely some detours that people made doing it. We have the station now. It's a laboratory that no one's ever had before. It's far beyond the capability of any previous space stations uh, or any Chinese space stations of the foreseeable future. And it's being exploited in many ways, being utilized far beyond what, uh, what the public's aware of. Well, Jim, of course, the space station is only one aspect of what NASA is doing. What are some of the other highlight missions? The highlight mission coming up, of course, is the Curiosity rover going to Mars, but there are also a fleet of spacecraft being operated right now around most of the planets of the solar system. It's kind of amazing how many vehicles are out there and continuously sending back information and other programs for future human flight, as well as aeronautics that NASA is involved in also. Well, Jim, we're hoping you'll stay with us for the entire show as we explore the future of NASA and space exploration. You willing to stick around? I'll be here. Okay, well, great. First, let's get the update on a couple of interesting current NASA missions and then get your reaction to them and how they fit with NASA's overall goals. As Gagarin said 50 years ago, off we go. Let's do it. Okay, first up and already flying the Gravity Recovery and Interior Laboratory Mission, or GRAIL. Its twin spacecraft are on their way now to our lovely lunar satellite. Maria Zuber is the principal investigator on this mission. But I hear you ask, we've been to the moon, and yet we keep going back. Why is that? Good question. Maria, we've been to the moon, and yet we keep going back. Why is that? Well, there are many things that we don't understand about the moon. For example, the difference between the near side and the far side is still a mystery. You know, we've sent over 100 missions to the moon, and we still don't know why the front and the back of the moon are different. So obviously, the answer is not on the surface. 
So when you say the front and back are different, maybe you should explain what's different because people usually don't see the backside. Well, people don't see the backside. The near side, which we look at any time we go out and see up in the night sky, is that there are white, bright parts of the moon and there are dark parts of the moon. In fact, that gives us what we uh, have symbolized as the, the man in the moon. And those dark parts are large uh, lava flows that have filled in impact basins. And on the backside of the moon, we don't have any of those lava flows. So there was extensive volcanism on the near side of the moon, but not on the far side of the moon. So you're the principal investigator, which is to say the lead scientist for a project called GRAIL, which is an acronym, slightly tortured acronym, for the Gravity Recovery and Interior Laboratory. And that's going to do what? Well, it's actually a a two-spacecraft mission. Two spacecraft are going to beam radio waves between each other so that we can measure the gravity field of the moon, which is going to tell us what the inside of the moon is made of and what kind of activity might be going on in the inside today. But when you say activity, you know, my impression was that the moon was kind of dead. It was dead, Jim, at least geologically. There was nothing going on on the inside of the moon. Whatever it was, it was, and it's been that way for billions of years. Is the reason to think that there is something going on inside the moon? We've been sending up laser signals from Earth to corner cubes and retroreflectors that the Apollo astronauts left on the moon, and that indicates that there could be some molten material deep inside the moon, and we would like to find out exactly what's going on down there. Okay, well, you've sent these two spacecraft. They're going to orbit the moon. How are they ever going to know what's going on beneath the surface? How does that work? Well, we vary the distance between the two spacecraft. The spacecraft get bumped around in their orbit due to the bumpiness of the the gravity field of the moon. And in fact, when the Apollo astronauts were going to land, they worried a lot about the bumpiness of the gravity field because it was more difficult for them to navigate. But if we change the distance between the two spacecraft, they're sensitive uh, to different depths. So when we make the spacecraft far apart, they're more sensitive to what's going on deep inside the moon. So you're really probing the moon's interior. Uh, what sort of thing could you find? Could you find, for example, if there was a buried Mount Everest made out of, you know, iron or something below the moon's surface? Could, could you find that with this uh, kind of an experiment? Well, I'm not expecting a, a buried Mount Everest, but what we might be able to find is if the moon has a molten iron core, we could detect that. We actually hope to detect the parts of the mantle that presumably melted that caused the lava flows on the near side of the moon. Now, you talk about lava flows, and there are some people who have said that there was a time when the moon was covered in oceans, not of water, but of uh, liquid rock, of of hot rock, magma. Is is there evidence that that was ever the case? Was the moon really knee-deep in hot rock? Actually, almost all scientists believe that, and the very white rocks that we see uh, when we look up at the moon are actually the evidence for that, because those are very low-density rocks, which I like to call the scum on the pond. Those rocks are so light that they floated up to the surface, and we do, in fact, believe that the moon was once almost totally molten on its surface. Was the Earth ever that way? Is there any evidence that our planet was also knee-deep in hot rock? The Earth melted, too. That's what we think. We believe that the moon formed when a wandering planetary body in the earliest solar system came by and whacked the Earth and melted the Earth and the impactor and threw out material that reformed to make a moon in Earth orbit. So, in fact, the moon was formed in a sort of cosmic uh, collision. Some some rock slams into the Earth. This must have been bad news the day that it happened. Uh, How long ago was it? Uh, This would have been over 4 billion years ago. Okay, so something slams into the Earth, it knocks off a chunk of the Earth, it pulverizes it, whatever the object is, and uh, so there's all this stuff thrown up. How does that uh, form a moon? Well, it probably formed a ring around the Earth, and collisions would have occurred in this disk, and it would have reformed into a moon after a relatively short period of time. When you say short period of time, that's being... No, tens of millions of years. Okay which is a short period of time in the history of the solar system. (laughs) 
Okay, so it formed the moon. Now, when it formed the moon, was the, was the moon hot all the way through? Was it, you know, the kind of thing where the heavy elements uh, could just sort of sink to the center, making a, a chewy nougat core, if you will, of, of, of metal or something like that? Well, these are actually the ideas that we plan to test. So we believe that it was molten. And then in the, the late stages of the moon forming, there were more impacts of material coming in. And as the moon cooled off, it was able to preserve that topography. And that produced the craters that we see today. And interestingly, as this was going on, this material in orbit around the Earth wasn't just hitting the accreting moon. It was hitting the Earth as well. So if you look at the surface of the moon and all those impact craters that you see if you look in a backyard telescope, Earth used to look like that. So actually by studying how the moon evolved in its earliest period of time, we can actually learn something about what the early Earth was like at that time as well. Is that the principal motivation for this? Because, you know, uh, the, the question is, what do you learn from this mission, assuming that you can map, as it were, the, the deep innards of the moon, you know, I, I can imagine people would say, well, but, but what does that tell you? Well, it tells us a lot about the way that planets form and what goes on in the inside of a planet affects what happens at the surface. For example, these large lava flows, they bring, lava brings gases that are locked in the inside of the planet to the surface. The moon may have had a steam atmosphere. Earth was going through the same thing at the same time. And at the time when all this was going on, it wasn't too long after this that the first single-cell organisms developed on Earth. So actually, by studying how the interior contributed to what was going on at the surface, this is part of the piece of the puzzle of understanding what the earliest environments were on the planets and uh, for Earth at the time when the, the first single-cell organisms developed. Maria Zuber, thank you very much. You're welcome. Maria Zuber is the principal investigator for the GRAIL mission and a planetary scientist at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Well, Jim Oberg, we want to get your opinion on the GRAIL mission, but let's discuss it in relation to another mission about to go up to Mars. Let's do it. Okay, hold on. Now, the question of habitability is also a part of the next mission to Mars. Now, we know some things about the red planet, Seth. It once had water on its surface. And it still does, although it's mainly ice and... It also has a very thin atmosphere. Okay, but is all of that enough to ever produce life? You're curious, I'm curious, and Curiosity is the alias of the Mars Science Laboratory, the latest rover to blast off en route to the fourth planet from our sun, says Mission Principal Investigator Joy Crisp, because when it comes to hunting for alien life, our previous missions did a lot, but... We haven't done a good job of looking for the building blocks of life, organic compounds, we tried to do that with Viking back in the 70s, and now we're going with an instrument that will be more sensitive and will be able to detect a wider range of organic compounds than we tried with Viking. So that's one thing. The other is to characterize a broader range of characteristics of the environment. So we're bringing some additional instruments, for instance, one that will measure the radiation environment at the surface meteorology, set of instruments to characterize the wind, humidity, pressure, temperature. As for water today, we have a DAN instrument on the rear end of the rover which can measure hydrogen abundance in the ground. So that could tell us if there's bound water. Now, well, you say a DAN instrument. It was designed by DAN? What, named no, after Dan that's the, the acronym for dynamic albedo of neutrons. So this thing pulses neutron particles at the ground and then has detectors that measure them when they come back to the instrument. And that's an indication of how much hydrogen is in the ground. Okay, so a lot of this is really sending a chemical analysis laboratory to Mars to, to figure out really what the stuff on the surface is made of. Uh, will you also have cameras on board the Curiosity rover? Loads of cameras. So we've got uh, engineering cameras that we use for safe driving and for safely placing the robotic arm out on things. So we've got four navigation cameras on the top of the rover for driving, four in the front of the rover and four in the rear for hazard avoidance, also for driving, and the ones in the front are for the robotic arm. So right there you've got 16 engineering cameras. Then we have uh, mast cam, which is our color camera on the top of the mast, and that does science. 
Now we've got a close-up magnifying lens type of camera on the end of the arm. And we have a ChemCam camera. There's a laser instrument that fires a laser gun from the top of the mast. And we get, along with that, we can take a black and white picture close up of the spot that we zap with the laser. Now, Curiosity has wheels. It can travel. And with all those cameras, it can see where it's going. It, it, does it have enough onboard smarts to figure out how to navigate on its own? Or does it require the kind of tedious instructions from Earth that other rovers have required? Well, actually, the previous rovers, well, the one is still operating, Opportunity is still driving around, and Spirit, when it was operating, did their own hazard avoidance. So we can't joystick them because it takes 5 to 20 minutes to send a command to Mars, depending on the distance between Earth and Mars. So we generally send up a set of commands once a day, and we're going to do the same thing with Curiosity and have very similar software on board for the rover to avoid hazards and to get where we want it to go. Joy, the surface of Mars looks to be more hostile than Attila the Hun. I mean, it's extremely dry. You know, it's stung by this lethal ultraviolet radiation that gets right through the atmosphere. Can Curiosity get below this forbidding surface and look underneath where, you know, the situation might be a bit kinder? Well, the interesting thing is, for the first time, we're bringing a jackhammer drill with us. (laughs) We're going to go in a few inches into rocks, and that's perhaps going to get down far enough so that some of the organic compounds have not been damaged and destroyed. And so we're hoping that we can uncover some clues that we wouldn't otherwise by drilling in just a couple inches. Now, in the soil, we can dig fairly deep with the wheels. So the wheels themselves are much larger than Spirit and Opportunity. And so there we could go many inches just by trenching with the wheels and then scooping soil out from where the the wheels have dug. It's one of the first times I've heard when spinning your wheels might actually have some beneficial effect. When does uh, this launch, when are you going to send it off on its uh, way to the red planet? Well, right after Thanksgiving, the window opens. So that's uh, November 25th. 2011. Uh, The window for launch closes December 18th, so uh, hopefully get launched in that period, and then land in August of 2012. Joy, do you think that there's really any chance that after all this effort to explore Mars and all the effort to come, it could be that Mars is and maybe always was devoid of life? Well, that is possible. Being a geologist, I find the rocks themselves fascinating. But what drives all this fascination with Mars is that there is still the possibility that life could have taken hold there. So it's a planet that looks like it might have been similar to ours when it started. So there's a lot of intriguing science questions, and this rover mission should answer a bunch of them. It'll probably uh, raise new questions as well. Joy Crisp, thank you so much for being with us today. All right. Joy Crisp is a geologist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory and principal investigator on the Curiosity mission to Mars. Okay, Jim, we'll be all ears for your comment in a moment. Yeah, I'm ready. Missions to the moon, Mars, and the future of our space agency. NASA or what? It's big picture science. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. We've heard about the exciting science involved in two current NASA missions, the GRAIL mission to the moon and the Curiosity mission to Mars. 
Jim Oberg, former space shuttle engineer and space expert, is helping us put these missions in perspective. Okay, Jim, these missions, Curiosity and Grail, how do they fit in with the overall NASA goals these days? Well, these missions, of course, are reviewed by the science boards to fit in to what you want to find out about the other planets. And one of the things you want to find out is where is the liquid water? On the uh, moon, for example, as Maria mentioned, the insides of it may be heating up. They may be volcanism. They may be, may be belching forth water. It may, it may be creating things like the lunar transient phenomena that astronomers have seen for centuries, so that there could be parts of the moon that are still geologically active. A lot of the data from the Grail can talk about that. Now, on, on Mars, we know that there is at least some more geological activity there. But, again, it's the insides that they're interested in. We want to look inside small rocks, but also down below the surface. There's a region of rubble before you get to solid rock where liquid water almost certainly exists. And in that liquid water could be some very interesting biochemistry. Any traces of that that reach the surface or are in some of the rocks near the surface, that's what the Curiosity rover is going to be looking for and drilling for. So it sounds, Jim, like what I'm hearing is that one of NASA's goals is still hunt for the water, look for the water. And another NASA goal these days is still send out these fabulous robots, the spacecraft, and continue exploration. Is that right? The goal is, of course, understand the uh, universe we're in and the life processes that form out there and how it affects life processes right here inside of us. Okay, so it sounds like NASA is still on that track, which is fantastic. But what about a human mission to Mars or off Earth? Is that still on the table these days? There's a lot of debate, of course, on, on future goals, but it's no longer a question of, of racetracks and finish lines. It's a question of finding out the answers to these kinds of questions and, of course, learning the new questions, the more pressing questions that we're going to discover as we go because we always wind up with more questions than answers, which is, of course, the way science works. Getting to Mars, getting people to Mars can have a role in that process. But it's not a be-all and end-all for any space program, ours or anybody else's. But the question, Jim, is, is it still a goal for NASA to send a human to Mars? Because it's my understanding that the Moon to Mars program is, is no longer. No, it's clearly still a goal because it's driving the design of intermediate projects, including work on the space station itself, the kind of things we need to know to get to Mars, things we didn't even know we did not know 10, 20, 30 years ago. We're now finding out on the space station and other research, some medical research that was canceled that may be put back on it, and engineering research that's been crucial to developing the hardware to bring people safely on a three-year space voyage. That's being worked on now, and in many ways it's only justified by its use in a future interplanetary flight. That's certainly part of the NASA program. Okay, so it sounds like NASA's still interested in giving humans a ride to Mars. And Jim, you're along for the ride. In this episode of Big Picture Science, NASA or what? And the what in that might just be commercial space flight. Now, there are a number of companies that have designed their own rockets to take people into space and even into low Earth orbit. These are private entrepreneurs, space cowboys, if you will. And they've grown, as you know, tired of waiting for the government to give them a ride into space. And there's even talk that these guys are going to beat NASA at its own game. So let's talk about some of these commercial space entrepreneurs. Who are the big players, Jim? The uh, most well-known players for getting people on the up-down flights are groups like Virgin Galactic, using Bert Rutan's design and, and descendants of that, and X-Core Aerospace working on a horizontal takeoff, horizontal landing rocket plane. They're going to fly in 2012. They're going to have flights higher and higher, and toward the end of the year, start crossing the space boundary. 2012? Yeah. That's, that's next year. Uh, that's, that's within a year, and, and they'll, be, they'll be flying and probably selling commercial seats soon after that. What's motivating these guys, Jim? Is it just the money? Well, the chance of making money on this or going broke is about 50-50 either way. The excitement of a new era of barnstorming is it ties them. They're not getting paid enough to do the work and put in the amount of work that the people out there are putting in. It's exciting. It's a new era of space where companies can now do things that it took entire governments to do 50 years ago. Okay, well, the flights are not just for tourists. As the prices come down, scientists are getting into the act and reserving tickets for a ride into space, at this point just suborbital, so not continually sailing round and round the planet as the International Space Station does. But what these scientists crave are the conditions of space, the view, of course, but also the chance to be weightless. Jim, we'll want to hear more about your thoughts on private spaceflight in a moment. 
Dan Durda, a planetary scientist at the Southwest Research Institute, a nonprofit independent applied research organization whose studies of planets take place in Boulder, Colorado, is one of the scientists who has a ticket to ride on a private space rocket. And he's bound to go. We have signed flight contracts in hand. We have six seats purchased with XCOR Aerospace. We have two seats on Virgin Galactic. And uh, just recently, in fact, our institution, Southwest, led the way in basically buying out an entire chartered research flight on Virgin Galactic's suborbital vehicle. Can you give me an idea what it's like to go up there? I mean, it isn't that the, you know, you're know going to choose between a window and an aisle or meals on board. I mean, what's it like? How, how, do you, how do you envision this trip into space? Let's just put it right out there. This is the Alan Shepard special. This is access to space on a suborbital flight. So one way or another, you're going to be rising up and out of the atmosphere at a pretty high speed, high enough to basically fly on a ballistic parabolic arc up to altitudes of something like you know over 100 kilometers, the internationally agreed upon upon definition of space. You'll be flying out and over the atmosphere for a little while, three or four minutes of zero-G time, access to the vacuum of space, access to the uh, unobstructed view of the cosmos through the atmosphere, before then re-entering back into the atmosphere and uh, either landing back or gliding back to the spaceport of your departure. Okay, but the amount of time that you're actually in space, that's only a few minutes, right? It varies from a few to several minutes, again, depending on the provider and what uh, what sort of trajectory they're, they're choosing. You know, a natural question we often get then is, you know, what can you do with just a few minutes in space? And it's a, it's a good question. It's a very natural question. But there are already hundreds of people who revel in just 23 seconds in zero-G whenever they fly parabolic research aircraft. And these are, you know, aircraft very similar to the commercial airliner that you fly from, you know, Boston to Cincinnati, except that you're flying on parabolic arcs through the upper atmosphere. And at the top of these little arcs, you'll get 15, 20, 30 seconds of zero-G, depending on the speed of the aircraft. And people do some very serious and a significant amount of very serious research all the time with just 23 seconds. So now imagine you've got 10 or 100 times longer. Um, that opens up a whole new area for research, I think. Well, it sounds like getting a couple of minutes on the Hubble Space Telescope. I mean, there are things you could do in a couple of minutes. I understand that you have uh, something called a box of rocks. Well, what's your box of rocks? What are you going to do with that? It's in literally space? a box of rocks. So, you know, my background, my background research interest is in asteroids and understanding the geology on the surfaces of asteroids. Before we can do anything with these objects, I think really well, we want to better understand what happens on their surfaces and you have to remember, these are objects, some of which aren't much bigger than a city block, and you know they exist in a state of very, very low gravity on their surfaces. And so the geology, the geologic processes that go on amongst dust and particles and granules in that sort of an environment is something we really don't have a lot of experience with here living on the surface of the Earth. And so with the Box of Rocks, it's a very simple demonstration-level experiment at this stage of the game just to sort of show the rest of our communities that there's you know research problems like that can be done in these sorts of vehicles. Well, Dan, it sounds like private spaceflight might be replacing the government-funded rides into space for scientists. Uh, is that true? And if so, what's the big advantage? Nobody does your experiment better than you do. Oceanographers, geologists, botanists have gone to the field for years, for decades, for centuries. The whole history of the sciences is writ by explorers going out and doing their experiments themselves out in the field. And we're moving into a, to an era now where it's possible for space scientists to go out to their field and actually conduct their experiments in person. Well, it sounds like a switch from a paradigm in which in order to do your experiment, you had to get this government scientist to go into the lab once every, I don't know, six months, every year, if you were lucky, or being able to go up there, if you can afford it, every day yourself. That's the beauty of it. You know, it, we were moving from a, uh, an era where... You know, even when space scientists did send their experiments up to space, it was a very expensive proposition, maybe, you know, a million dollars for a sounding rocket flight. You send that payload up, and then you bring it down, you refurbish it, and then, you know, after you go through the review process of another proposal, and you might get to fly that experiment again in a year or two. Now we're going to be moving to an era where for, you know, maybe a tenth of the cost, you could go and fly your package on Tuesday, and if your student who is working the experiment and learning how to do all this was uncomfortable with the results, you know what? 
you didn't like the way it worked out on Tuesday, you repackage it, you make some changes, you dial in the bells and whistles a little different, you fly it again on Thursday. This is a case where I think failure is not only an option, it's required, right, to learn what works, what doesn't, in a way that's inexpensive and forgiving enough that you can then move on and and learn from that experience and go on and, and do bigger and better things. I don't want to sound boorish, but what is the cost of going up into space for you know on one of these private uh, rockets? Uh, let's see. The the uh, Virgin Galactic's numbers are, are pretty well known. Those seats are currently going for uh, $200,000 a seat. And that's a seat for a person. That's a seat geared for, you know, the standard aviation 170-pound person that may not necessarily even have to be a person. What if it's a rack of experiments? Uh, if you work out the numbers, it ends up being about $1,000 a pound to go fly to spacing. At $1,000 a pound, literally, I mean, literally, a high school class could conceive of an experiment at the beginning of a semester of classes, literally have a car wash or a bake sale to raise the money to fly the experiment, fly the experiment, maybe even once or twice, get the results, analyze them, and close the project by the end of that semester's term in that class. Sounds like it's about a factor of 10 cheaper than what you've been able to do so far. That's exactly what it's looking like. Okay, now what about the International Space Station, Dan? Couldn't the ISS be doing this kind of research? I mean, it's, you know, it's up there in orbit all the time. Mm -hmm. And they are. Um, there are a great many of packages like this that are actually up at Space Station all the time. They're not necessarily, you know, the, you know, the Nobel Prize winning science, although there is some of that actually, but there are little experiments going on all the time. Uh, again, I think it just points out the value of these suborbital vehicles and the, subor- and the experiments that you can do on them to basically add value and make even more precious the, the experiments that were getting done on the Space Station because it's you're, 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 in a sense, proving them out and making sure they're going to work well when you do get them there. Okay, but what does it take to get an experiment on the uh, space station? I'm told that uh, the paperwork is a fair fraction of the yeah, effort. Yeah, that's the, <laughs> the, the sort of standard governmental model is that a vehicle is usually not ready to fly until the weight of the paperwork equals the weight of the vehicle. <laughs> so, you know, admittedly, it's still like that when flying to the station. There are a lot of safety protocols when you're having the, you know, basically the government employees, you know, caretaking the experiment for you up there. There's a lot of extra safety processes you have to go through. Now, you mentioned safety. Uh, Was there a time when NASA was a little less risk adverse? I mean, what is this? It sounds like everybody expects everything to work all the time and to be completely safe. Yeah, it's, uh, and it's not just NASA. I think it's our entire society. I think our own entire society has, has changed over the years to be a little bit less forgiving of of failure. And, you know, in this environment, certainly when human lives are involved in flying in space, everyone wants to be as safe as possible. And certainly these commercial companies are operating along that line as well. There's been some discussion lately I've seen in the written press about the schedule. You know, gee, we were supposed to be flying a long time ago already. Why isn't this proceeding faster? And, you know, really, quite frankly, I like the fact that this is not being rushed and it's proceeding at a logical pace according to the safety of flight. So I think that's telling us that even the commercial side of this is proceeding the right way when it comes to the safety. But this uh, this new capability is going to allow us to, you know, I think shave off some, uh, not on the safety area, but to shave off some of the other process, paperwork process bits of things. So, you know, you, you can go to Radio Shack and buy the parts to, uh, to have your experiment work in space. You don't have to get caught in this catch-22 loop of, well, you can't fly this experiment in space because the pieces of your experiment haven't been demonstrated that they would actually work in space. This happens all the time in, in experiments, right? You can't fly it till you can demonstrate that you've flown it. Well, what do you do? Well, you know, now you can go to Radio Shack, buy your parts, flying them in space, and see if it works. And if it works, great. If it doesn't, well, you're kind of redesigned. You're not caught in that loop anymore. You know, with standards like that, Magellan never would have gone anywhere. Can we still do cutting-edge research, or are we so bound in a corner where we can't move? Well, I think you kind of hit it. There's a, there's a balance point. Everyone wants this to work. Frankly, it all comes down to all of us really want to go and fly in space. Well, finally, Dan, clearly you want to go into space. When's it going to happen? When do you fly? Where's the launch? The standard question is, when is this going to happen? And I, I think the answer, the, the real answer is it's going to happen when they're ready and it's safe to go. It's not going to be this calendar year, but I would be very surprised if it's three or four years from now. So I think somewhere in that 2013-ish time frame, we'll, we'll be bringing back those first results from our space flights. Dan Durda, bon voyage, and thanks for talking to me. Outstanding. Thanks a lot. To boulder go where no one has gone before is what Dan Durder wants to do from Boulder, Colorado, as a planetary scientist at the Southwest Research Institute. And for people who really want to get involved, 
Dan says there's an entire conference devoted to doing so, the Next Generation Suborbital Researchers Conference. It'll be in Palo Alto, California, in February 2012, and you can find a link on our website. Okay. Jim Oberg, Dan Durda is excited to go into space on a private rocket. Uh, Is this kind of an either-or situation that either we have the government in the business of getting us into space or we let private companies do it? I think we're going to see a new cast of characters here. There are government agencies who want to be able to fly themselves on their own schedule and uh, with no one else watching. And there are private companies that want to be able to sell tickets. Those are in the U.S. and in other countries. There are more players involved with getting people up and down to space right now that you can count on fingers and toes. And a good number of those are going to be flying people into space over the next several years. Will these private companies, the ones that Dan referred to, say Virgin Galactic and Excorp, be working with NASA to provide rides into space? Some of these companies are giving rides to the scientists, but will they go all the way to the International Space Station and give rides to astronauts? Both of these groups will be certainly selling tickets to the the government. The up-down flights will be mostly private, but there are NASA purchases already for flights on Virgin Galactic. The uh, more serious challenge, of course, orbital flight, is being done by a number of companies that NASA alone is the currently known customer for. And that's a question that people have. Is is NASA spending money to develop these private companies if no one else is going to be spending money to keep the price down? Uh, The answer there is that as NASA buys the tickets uh, and is the anchor, anchor tenant for a lot of these activities, other customers will step forward, as they always have, every time the government has invested money in developing transportation technologies and then stepping aside as more and more private groups begin exercising those technologies and paying taxes on them. Thanks, Jim. We'll hope you'll stay with us a little bit longer. We'll be here. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when our prized space telescope goes wildly over budget. I mean, billions over, and its fate gets hung up in Congress. The James Webb Space Telescope, next. Is that NASA or what? From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Big Picture Science. NASA, or what, is our mission today. And since space is a big place, uh, really big, we've enlisted the retired space shuttle mission control engineer and uh, self-described space nut, Jim Oberg, for this hour to help us put recent activities in perspective. Okay, Jim, one thing the commercial space cowboys can't do, at least yet, is launch a big-picture mission. I mean, an instrument that investigates the really big questions about our universe. Right, something like the Hubble Space Telescope, which has produced iconic images of the birth of stars and revealed secrets about the structure of the universe that have really changed how we think about it. Now, the replacement for Hubble, Jim is another gem, (laughs) the James Webb Space Telescope. In a nutshell, what is the James Webb Space Telescope? Well, Molly, the James Webb Telescope is truly a successor to the Hubble. It'd be 30 years afterwards that it's going to be much more sensitive, see farther out into space and therefore farther back into the past in different wavelengths. It's going to be farther out from Earth, about a million miles from Earth, and sit out there and just look out at the universe and astonish us. It's not in orbit yet, right? It's on the ground, and it's still being assembled. The telescope is still being assembled, and it's still running running into some significant cost problems because the technology is just at the edge and a little bit beyond the edge of what we're capable of doing. And it's still several years from being launched. Okay, well, Jim, hang on. Massimo Stiavelli worked on the Hubble telescope for, I don't know, decades, and he's now at the Space Telescope Science Institute, where he's a member of the science working group for the James Webb Space Telescope. 
in italiano, sì. mi piace il cibo soprattutto e la storia. Massimo Stiavelli is many things. For one, he's a fan of his native Italy. Io vengo dalla Toscana, Etruschi. He's also, well... A Massimo Stiavelli, I'm an astronomer at the Space Telescope Science Institute and my job these days is I'm the project scientist for the James Webb Space Telescope. Come si dice in italiano? Non ho idea. Telescopio spaziale Giacomo Webb. <laughs> well, as we heard, there is some uncertainty about whether the James Webb Space Telescope is actually going to fly. Well, Massimo, will James Webb fly? I hope so. I sure hope so. He says a launch date is proposed for 2018, if the project is fully funded. Well, the thing is that the Senate has approved adequate funding for the launch of the telescope, but the House has its doubts, and it's not yet made a decision on whether to fund or even for how much it would be willing to fund. So we just need Congress to agree on something. <laughs> it could be easy or it could be hard. Bottom line, it just comes down to the money. Meanwhile, the telescope hardware is coming together. Uh, the mirrors, for instance, are almost done. The instruments are in various stages of readiness. Some are almost done and some require a little bit more work. Well, the main mirror of the telescope is actually broken up into 18 smaller mirrors. But it all makes one mirror. Exactly. These 18 guys work as a team to simulate one giant mirror. Are any of them gals? No, these, these mirror segments are all masculine. Now, there's a model of the telescope right in the lobby of the Space Telescope Science Institute. So this is a little model in scale 1 and 20 of the James Webb Space Telescope. And you can see here the primary mirror with the 18 uh, segments, which have a very, very thin coating in gold. So it looks a little bit like a honeycomb in that way, that you have this great big mirror and then it's divided into all of these other segments. Why do you need it segmented? Because it, it would be essentially impossible to build a 6.5-meter telescope. Because a massive mirror would just be too heavy, Seth? Well, yeah, it would be too heavy, but it would also be too big. I mean, you couldn't fit it into a rock. It. You need it light enough and small enough to actually stuff it into the nose of a rocket and send it into space. He also said that the mirrors are coated in gold. I kind of wonder how much gold is involved. It's about two ounces all over, so it doesn't really contribute to the cost. And we bought it when the gold was low. <laughs> well, even if he bought it when the gold was high, it would still only be a tiny fraction of the cost of this thing. Hey, where does the gold come from? Do you know? Well, <laughs> they dig it out somewhere, but the reason they use gold is because they want to reflect light at infrared wavelengths. Okay, so it's good for reflectivity. And, and this mirror is all about collecting as much infrared light as possible, but you have to get the light that it collects to the instruments. So the infrared light travels from deep space, then... Bounces on the primary mirror, goes on the secondary mirror, and goes into this black box that has additional mirrors, and the instruments are in the back. Okay, Seth, but why do you have to bounce this light all over the place? Well, that's just a consequence of the design of the telescope. I mean, if you put all the instruments at the focus of the big mirror, they would just block the incoming light. So you have to bounce it around and put the instruments in the back there somewhere. Like a pinball machine. You have to bounce it like a pinball machine. Well, I think it's more like a pool table shot, Molly, actually. But the point is, you want to gather as much light as possible. Now, is this where you say that telescopes are like light buckets, you know, because we hear that a lot? Yeah, we do, because that's what they are. Actually, the, the principal function of any telescope is to gather as much light or radio waves as possible. If you had to come up with a new metaphor right now, what would it be? Uh, light pail. That pales by comparison with the other metaphor. Okay, now you need such a big mirror because we're looking across the universe back in time. Right, 13 billion years back to try and see the first galaxies forming. Now that's quite a ways, and because it's so far off, you need to gather as many photons as you can. Okay, so it would seem as though the James Webb telescope can reveal a lot, yet this instrument has acquired, I don't know, what's a good word, an outcast? How about pariah? A pariah status in some of the astronomical communities. Well, that's because it's run so far over budget. I mean, it's threatening to siphon money from other astronomy projects. At least some people say that. Yeah, but Mario says that's a dramatic overstatement. The problem is that the astronomy budget at NASA has gone down in general, and people have forgotten the tale of a now-celebrated telescope that was once severely criticized. This is a déjà vu. Hubble went 
pretty much through the same stages. It ended up costing more than it was planned. Ended up, in fact, in today's dollars, if you correct for inflation, pretty much in the same ballpark as the, as the James Webb is going to be. And nowadays, looking at the data, the picture, the results, nobody remembers that there was a time when people wanted to kill Hubble. And I think it would be the same for James Webb. But you're trying to do something you've never done before. It's very complex, very challenging. You don't know how much it's going to cost. Use the phrase déjà vu, which is a French phrase. Do the Italians not have a, a phrase that means we've seen this all before? No, I don't think so. I think we say déjà vu. <laughs> so this telescope has a promise to be a cosmological winner. I wonder if Massimo could pick one of the James Webb's instruments and tell us just what's so special about it. I'd like to pick two. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, two then. Having spoke to Massimo, I know that the first is something called the NearCam. Right, NearCam. It's looking at galaxies that are far away, but they're not that far away. They're normally visible light. The light from their stars has been shifted down in wavelengths to wavelengths that are just in the infrared, just barely edged over from visible to infrared light. What do you mean it's been shifted down? That sounds like driving a stick shift of a car. Well, these galaxies are participating in the expansion of the universe, so they're moving away from us, and that means that the wavelengths of the light that comes from them is shifted down, just the way the sound of a train whistle would be shifted down if it were moving away from you. So it's longer wavelengths. That's what makes your voice do that funny thing that it just did. Exactly. Okay, the NearCam is one of Massimo's favorite instruments, and the other one? That's the near spectrograph. That would allow us to detect water on another planet, a planet that might be in the so-called habitable zone. And that, I think, would be a a life-changing event in science, finding another planet a bit bigger than the Earth with a habitable zone and water in its atmosphere. That's the goal, is the most ambitious science goal, I think, for James Webb, find liquid water in a habitable planet. So we'll have a second eye in the sky until Hubble comes to an end. It sounds like Hubble trouble. <laughs> Is the idea that Hubble will just quit working? Well, yeah. I mean, things like the gyroscopes will, will stop at some point. I mean, it's like your car, Molly. If you stop maintaining it, eventually it's going to stop working. But, of course, you would have somebody to tow your car away. You wouldn't leave it parked on the street. So there will be a mission to remove Hubble from its present orbit. So this mission will go up grapple the telescope and could either push it down in a, in a controlled re-entry or it could boost it up into an orbit that would decay in a thousand years. So essentially leave the problem to our great-grandchildren. I notice that when he talks about Hubble, Massimo gets a big smile on his face. Well, I've been, uh, I've been working on Hubble for many years before moving on to Webb. So it'll be difficult, I assume, to say goodbye to Hubble. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> Grazie. Prego. Massimo Stiavelli is an astronomer at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore and a project scientist for the James Webb Space Telescope. Well, Jim Oberg, if the House and Senate reconcile the budget, will James Webb fly? That'll be one further obstacle out of the way, but the telescope is a big challenge to build. And I would really be too hopeful to say that there won't be any future ones. But it will fly because people around the world want it to fly. Do you have any bets on whether or not the House and Senate will reconcile the budget over the telescope? I bet on predictable things such as horses. Okay, well, yeah, I mean, suppose it doesn't fly then. I mean, does that raise the possibility that the U.S. might lose its edge in space exploration and astronomy and the focus would shift to, I don't know, to Europe or to China? There are other countries doing space astronomy. In fact, the Russians just inaugurated a long-delayed mission called SPECTRE, which is now being tested out in orbit. And it's a very appreciable telescope, but it's not the Webb telescope. It's not even a Hubble. The best astronomy in the world, space astronomy, is being done by NASA and with partners around the world who have signed on with NASA. To have someone else try and replace NASA's central role would take 10 or 20 years to even organize So if Webb doesn't fly, we're not going to get that eye. Well, do you see this telescope, the James Webb, as possibly solving the identity crisis for NASA in a post-shuttle era? It's almost the core of NASA's identity, which is to look and see and find new things. And uh, every time we've opened a new eye on the universe, we've uh, had to revise our old views. Uh, this This has been the history of astronomy for centuries. So it is so much in keeping with the way that science has moved forward and knowledge of our place in the universe has moved forward. 
by building better and better instruments. NASA is the exploration agency, and uh, this kind of activity is at the core of that theme. Well, Jim, we heard Massimo being a little nostalgic for Hubble, and I suppose a lot of astronomers feel very attached to this telescope, as the general public does. Why is Hubble one of the great success stories of NASA? Hubble is the great success story, not only for what it found, but for the difficulties it overcame. Uh, After being launched, after showing the kind of mistakes that humans can make in these projects, and then the kinds of repair jobs that humans could counteract the mistakes with, it was a drama that could have been scripted into some kind of a great Hollywood blockbuster movie. So it's uh, the kind of overcoming odds that inspire us in our daily lives. And add to that, the things it did see, the star nurseries, the planetary surfaces, objects in our solar system, objects in other solar systems, uh, objects at the edge of the galaxy and beyond. Just looking into deep space and exposing a picture for weeks and weeks at a time to see galaxies we didn't even know were there. Those are the things that uh, you open your eyes hoping to find and, and Hubble allowed us to find them. Well, finally, Jim, you know, you were a space shuttle engineer once. Now you spend your time talking to the public about NASA and space. i got to ask, do you miss your rocket scientist days? I like doing the operations. I like figuring out problems. I'm still figuring things out and telling about them now. Uh, in many ways, my work is at a different level of work, but it's still figuring out the universe and finding out things and doing things that no one in the history of the planet has ever done before. That's the kind of thing that motivates people in the space business, and it motivates people who are enthusiastic about space, even if they're in other businesses, because they know that that kind of feeling electrifies society. It electrifies our country, our culture, our entire planet, and that's a source of power that we can use a lot more of. James Oberg is a former shuttle engineer and space expert and space nut who I believe has a T-shirt that says rocket scientist on it. Indeed. It says, why, yes, I am a rocket scientist. (laughs) Thanks, Jim. Thank you. Thank you, Molly. Thank you, Seth. We'll see you again. Thank you very much, Jim. Well, Molly, that's our overview of where NASA's headed. Some exciting missions underway, some uncertainty with the James Webb Telescope, but I think it's going to fly. And the overall unknown question of how private spaceflight will reshape space exploration. Can we use that countdown device again? Of course. Five. We thank our production staff, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and volunteer Jay Weiler. Four. Your turn. And thank the support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. Three. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Two. Your ears have been attuned to NASA or what? You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And hey, while you're online, why not go to Facebook, become a fan of the program? You can leave your comments there as well. One. Uh, By the way, if you're a podcast listener and prefer over-the-air radio, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. A blast off. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.